Well, it's time once again for the show we like to call Inside EMS. I am your host, Chris Subalero, and with me is my good friend, the man we used to call the Ted Nugent of EMS. I still do it behind his back. Kelly Grayson, KG, how you doing? I'm good, brother. I'm good. I'm I'm, I'm at war with the booger eating cretins of Facebook. Oh my uh, goodness! You know you. It's a end. never. It's a never ending. It's this is longer than the war in Afghanistan. This war with you and social media people. Yes, it is. It is. And and you know, I I just put up a notice on my page. You know, for for any of my social media contacts, do not tag me on this fentanyl hysteria anymore. It is not good for my blood pressure. It harshes my mellow. All right. Well, you know, you can't ju- you can't just throw your hands in the air and give up. I'm gonna wave my hands in the air like I just don't care. <laughs> That's right, and scream it from the rooftops. Right. That's right. All right. Drive by the people as they start to look and stare. Now we do want to be able to. It's good you know the words of that song. How about that, Dad? <laughs> but um, it, it we do have to talk about. I think uh, COVID nineteen has become a pandemic. And uh, we've got to be able to uh, understand that uh, we've got to change the way that we do business. We did our show last week, and we talked about some of the things that we've got to do to keep safe. I think we're still a long way in the United States of, you know, it being in every state. Like I said last week, it started on the coast, and now it's starting to move its way into the middle of the United States. But I think right now, we've got to be able to pay attention to our habits. We've got to talk about hand washing a little bit more diligently. We've got to talk about keeping our hands away from our face. The thing that worries me, Kelly, is that are the ERs and are the EMS agencies going to be overrun and that there's going to be a challenge when it comes to the providers who are able to do the job for the people that need us? You know, we talk about self-quarantine. We talk about, uh, you know, not going to the emergency room if you're feeling flu symptoms and call for some supportive, for supportive care. Um, but I'm really worried about that. I mean, I think when we think about our foresight of other things that we've done, uh, we've got to be able to be ready for it. And I think now is the time that we've got to stop breaking the habits. I'm trying very hard now not to touch my face anymore. Uh, I'm trying very hard to make uh, to pay attention to the things I touch, and when I've cleaned my hands in between, um, I'm not being fanatic. I mean, people are laughing at me because uh, you know I'm I'm using Perel more, or I'm I'm yeah. not trying to touch things. But I think that as this thing starts to progress, uh, we don't know where it's going to come from, and I think people are getting crazy right now. But I do think that we've got to change some of our habits. Yes, most definitely. We we uh, we could all do better by by not merely paying lip service to to hand washing and hygiene and and uh, um, barrier devices and so on and so forth, but uh, and actually practice what we preach. Um, but you know the the point is we don't know enough about coronavirus right now. Um, uh, I think that people are incorrect when they say it's not as bad as the flu. Because uh, clearly, for for a certain subset of the population, it is. Um, but then again, the the opposite end of the spectrum is people tell you, oh, it's just another cold," uh, and and it's clearly worth uh, more than that. Point being, we we don't know enough about it yet uh, to know whether to panic or whether not to panic. And I think the 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 reasonable position would be somewhere between those two extremes. Um, you know, we don't know how uh, how. Uh, the mortality rate of this virus as it stands right now, because uh, the numbers are skewed higher 
simply because uh, we have no idea how many people who were infected um, actually presented for medical care. So that may they pull the mortality numbers down quite a bit. Um, we don't know how many people are infected, period. We, we're still ramping up our detection efforts and, and that sort of thing. And it, until we know more, uh, this, this uh, furor over the coronavirus is, is, um, is, is just going to continue. Um, and I liken it to when you hear about a mass shooting or, or, or any other tragic event, um, in the media, uh, 90% of what you hear in the first few days following it is absolutely BS. Um, just take a wait and see approach, be careful, be cautious, uh, and, and wait and see what we find out about it. And then right. we'll have, we can take a reasoned response to coronavirus. And we do want to be able to, uh, you know, talk about it, um, just to make sure that we keep our, our peers out there knowledgeable. I know that every EMS system is keeping their eye on it. Every EMS leader that I talk to is busy with dealing with, uh, you know, how to prepare their organizations. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. Yeah. You know, it's time once again to say goodbye to a piece of equipment that's been a staple in our airway bags for many years. Kelly, I'm going to give it to you and let you set it up because you've been on this path. You've been an advocate for this change for quite mm -hmm. some time, and it's only right that you set it up for the listeners. Well, uh, we're talking about a, uh, an article in, on EMS-1 by uh, Captain Steve LaCroix uh, called Writing the Epitaph for the Large Adult Bag Valve Mask. And, and he makes some excellent points in there that uh, I've heard in, in numerous other places. And, and he, he supports his, his premise uh, with pretty solid data. The, the problem being is that we overventilate people drastically. Uh, not only do we not appreciate, uh, by and large, not appreciate the, the, the risk of barotrauma and, and how much uh, positive pressure ventilation impedes uh, intrathoracic blood return um, and, and that sort of thing, but we, we also ventilate way too fast and way too deep um, just from, from the adrenaline rush of, of, of uh, bagging someone in a resuscitation situation. Um, and most adult BVMs, and I'm surprised continually by how few people consider this, but a large adult BVM probably provides roughly a thousand mLs of air if you if you give a fully decompress the bag and you fully uh, compress the bag and, and uh, uh, collapse it, maybe as much as 1500 to 1600 milliliters of air. When the average adult tidal volume is only 500. And I've been saying for several years now, and I didn't come up with this idea. I, I actually, you know, uh, wiser, wiser folks than I came up with it. But I, I know a, a good idea when I hear one uh, have advocated that we need to stop using adult Ambu bags and just use a pediatric Ambu bag with an adult mask. Um, and and there's some some definite merit to the theory. Uh, but it, it's, it gets me to wonder you know, how much of what we thought we knew about oxygenation and ventilation um, and, and what the gold standards are and the, and the practice benchmarks are in our industry and how valid those really are in this day and age. You remember, you know, we used to say that, that intratracheal intubation was the gold standard of care, right? You know, and, and uh, that you should bag a patient uh, um, 
uh, fairly uh, till you see full chest rise and all that sort of thing. And, and, and that sort of thing is not true anymore. Or that uh, uh, hypoxia sets in within just a few minutes of, of uh, cessation of ventilation. And we know that we have techniques now that can stave off hypoxia for, for up to an hour. So what do you think, man? I mean, if you were, uh, you're go back in the way back machine to, to run in a, uh, your own ambulance service and you've got an offer where guy says, Hey, I can, uh, um, I can replace two items on your truck. One of which probably sits in dry rots on your shelf with one item. Uh, and it's going to be better for your patients. Would you, would you take them up on that? You know, I was I was always the type of uh, guy that I wanted to see what it was going to do. I wanted to see the proof of it. You, you know, just walk in and tell me that something is going to be better for the patients, uh, better for my crews. Mm-hmm. I, I really want to be able to see that it's going to be better, and there needs to be proof. Uh, you know, but you you make your good point where you talk about the volume that we were given in a BVM, and and you know we were said that we needed to be able to squeeze as much as that bag as possible. And I have to tell you that I don't know that I got every single ounce of air out of a bag valve mass <laughs> when it came to me, you know, giving, uh, you know, ventilations to the pe- people who need it. So even though I'm using a, and in, back in the old days, Kelly, we used to have 1600 milliliter bags and mm-hmm. th- there were those, be- yeah, they were those bellow things that we used to use back in the old days. But I got to tell you, man, when I squeeze that bag, I don't know that I'm squeezing that bag to get every single ounce of air in out of it. Um, you know, there are times where I've used my hand against my leg and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But when we think about full chest rise and fall, we've got to know that we are probably putting some of that air into the epigastrum and Mm -hmm. we are going to have a challenge when it comes to filling the belly a little bit later on down the road. So now I know you made a comment before we started recording as we were getting ready to do the top, uh, you know, to talk about this topic. And you said, get rid of your large bags and get rid of your PD bags. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm really interested for you to share a little bit about that because I'm really I don't know how I feel about uh, you know that comment that you made, and I I, I think I, I want to discuss it with you. Well, you know we we have two uh, in many services three standard size ambu bags. You got an infant, you got a pediatric, uh, you got an adult bag, um, and the pediatric bag is generally capable. Uh, the the regular pediatric bags, we're not talking about the neonate bags, are generally capable of providing 500 mils of air if you fully collapse the bag. So if you fully compress that bag every time, you'll get about 500 mils of air, which is, which is sufficient for the vast majority of human beings, um, uh, of adult human beings. <clears throat> so it allows you to, to kind of practice lung protective ventilation um, without the hazard of, of going overboard and ventilating too much. Now, you couple that with, with uh, a peep valve uh, and, and some of the features on these newer bags out there, and, and it, it has become clear to me that our old standby is something that, you know, we've outgrown. Uh, we're, we're, we're trying to practice Cadillac medicine with the Yugo uh, BVM, and, and there are better ones out there now. Uh, you've got several manufacturers that make a small adult bag that is uh, that you can buy with multiple uh, uh, size masks and use it to, to be your, your one size fits all bag. So the, they are more expensive, uh, but they also have a good deal more features. 
I remember a Chris, I remember a, a study sometime back at, at one of the major children's hospitals in the Midwest. I don't remember exactly where, but they looked at simulated uh, arrest resuscitations. They, they did scenarios and they looked at how fast trained medical providers, these were, were children's hospital nurses, physicians, paramedics, uh, how fast they ventilated pediatric patients in cardiac arrest. And it was crazy high in the like 40 breaths a minute. Um, and, and they took them aside after the, the, the uh, training and said, look, you know, this is, this is harmful. This is not good for your patients. There is no physiologic reason uh, to, to ventilate that fast. Uh, and here's why it could be harmful. And, and, you know, most of them, uh, responded with, Oh gosh, you know, I never considered that, but yes, definitely. We're going to adopt, we're going to change our practice, uh, with, with this new knowledge. And they went back and reevaluated them, uh, six months later and found out that they had slowed down their ventilation, uh, to about 30 breaths a minute. <laughs> so we still got a ways to go, but you know, intuitively, I used to teach my students, you know, um, count out loud. Uh, and, and instead of saying, you know, one breath every, you know, five to six seconds, I would say um, six more breaths to go, five more breaths to go or whatever. Um, and, and talk it out because you count faster when you're nervous, too. So what you may think is one breath every five to six seconds is actually one breath every three to four seconds because you're, you're doing the rapid fire speech thing because your adrenaline is pumping. But there are plenty of devices out there. Even if you don't replace your current BVM, uh, adult and pediatric BVMs with one of the small adult bags that are available out there, you can simply sleeve your adult BVM and make it deliver less volume uh, and less likely to induce barotrauma, less likely uh, to reach a peak pressure that'll push uh, uh, air past the lower esophageal sphincter, less likely to cause positive intrathoracic pressure that, that uh, um, impedes blood return to the right. heart. And also, and also value trauma. And, and I think that's, exactly. one that, that's one that we don't talk about enough. We talk about intrathoracic pressure. We talk about barotrauma all the time, mm -hmm. but we don't talk about value trauma. And it really yeah. is probably something that we do first before we get into anything else. But you talked about sleeving your BVM. And for the people that mm -hmm. aren't familiar with that meaning, uh, just explain to them what that is. Yeah, well, when you when you pull a, a BVM out of the package, we've all done it. You know, the, we pull the BVM out of the package and you hastily assemble it. And and likely it's not if a, a few years back, if it if it came packaged with a peep valve, you just looked at it and threw it in the trash. And now we know that the peep valve is, is actually necessary. And if you're bagging someone, if someone's bad enough to need artificial ventilation, they're probably uh, bad enough to, to need a, a little higher than physiologic peep. But when you take the bag out of the uh, out of the container, they're usually collapsed in on themselves, accordion style. They're, they're uh, and when you re uh, when you pull the bag out to its normal shape, just leave it partially uh, expanded. So don't pull out all the accordion folds. Just leave the one uh, on the rear end of the bag toward the oxygen connector. Leave that tucked in and. That effectively limits the volume of the bag to 500, 700 uh, mils of air. Yeah, and one of the things now that we're starting to see is that more and more of the bags that are coming out, uh, they're changing. You know, they don't, they don't have those mega bags that are out there. We're seeing 
bag valve masks that have a tidal volume of a thousand milliliters and again how much are we squeezing out of that bag that's really you know getting into the patient's lungs some of these bag valve masks now have uh, you know, uh, peak inspiratory pressure, as you said, by using a manometer. Mm -hmm. So you're able yep. to set that and give the, you know, the right amount of volume. Um, you know, you talked about PEEP. I think that's a best practice that we need to be able to start using PEEP yeah. in, in, those, uh, in those situations where there's severe respiratory distress or when we've taken over the breathing uh, for people. And, you know, one of the things that people don't use, I mean, we've gone into this whole pick through CPR and, uh, and and you said it and I shook my head in disdain when you mentioned um, that you use music as far as for uh, keeping mm -hmm. the timing of CPR when you're on calls which I think is a horrible thing I, I won't get into it again but um, using a timing device when it comes I mean I think you have a best yeah. practice where instead of talking about one breath every five seconds you're changing the process for your students by saying five breaths to go, four breaths to go. And I think that that's another way to look at it, but there are timing devices. And if I'm not mistaken, and I, and I mm -hmm. apologize, I hate to do this. There is a bag valve mask that's on the market that I think has a little, uh, whether it's a light or whether it's something. Yeah. And it's, it's just not coming to me. Uh, and if you know it, please send me an email on it so we can talk yeah. about it. Um, but it's a, it's a light that actually uh, gives you the prompt to say it's time, it's time, it's time. Yeah, it's a light, light metronome. Right. Um, that's an idea that, that has been around since, uh, uh, um, I, I forget the gentleman's name, but he's, he's a, a, a pretty, pretty um, astute innovator, uh, invented a little stick-on uh, LED metronome called the Lifetimer. Um and, and many, uh, there are a couple of bamboo bags out there now that integrate this kind of technology uh, into it. And, and I use these bags in my courses. And a, and a great exercise is to get someone to close their eyes and ventilate a mannequin at what they think is the appropriate rate while everyone else watches and sees how far off they are. Uh, and, you know, I can tell them when the light comes on, bag. And they start, and invariably they're they're bagging faster than than uh, ten to twelve breaths a minute. Uh, in some cases, uh, quite a bit so, even though they're counting it out. And and it, it strikes anyone who, who looks at these things uh, that it, it's uh, five to six seconds uh, between breaths is is a lot slower than you think it is. But it's necessary, and it's good for our patients. And and things like that, the manometer and that peep valve. And integrated in tidal capnography, or not capnography, uh, capnometry uh, in these bags um, is, you know, we have better devices out there now. Um, and, and many of the current devices you're using can uh, can be retrofitted with, with the appropriate accessories. Uh, so you don't have to even switch suppliers if you need, if you would rather not. Uh, the question is, why aren't we doing it? And, and Steve points out in his in his article that, you know, even well-educated pre-hospital providers tend to cling to the old ways of doing things because that's their comfort zone. Um, well, I don't know about that. I, I think it really comes down to that education as well. We're, we're used to just being, you know, habitual in the way that we treat patients. And, you know, you talked about it a little bit earlier when we started the show about, um, you know, we're now learning things about our care delivery that weren't necessarily true. A couple points that I want to uh, jump into here is, you know, you talked about um, 
uh, let's not forget capnography though when we're when we're doing mm. bag valve mask as well we do have the ability whether the patient's intubated or whether we're just using bag valve mask ventilations mm -hmm. to check that capnography and i've got to remember uh back in my day of being on the truck if i was keeping people between a 35 and 45 millimeters of mercury sometimes i was banging them nine times a minute and, you know, you could use your capnography really as a guide to say, as long as I keep them within this range, I know that they're okay as well. You're not giving them 12, you're not giving them 20. But as I mentioned, I remember bagging this patient at nine and they stayed within a, a good range. I mean, when we think about our inhalation and exhalation, what is our resting number or what is our number that we really need to stay in? You know, we're using our, our guessing to say, um, I think this is a good, I think that this is a good number to use, you know, between 12 and 20, big deal. But mm -hmm. uh, why can't we use 10? Why can't we use 11? Why can't we use nine? And if we use a tool like capnography, uh, it really does give us a better guide than we just have to guess. Yeah. You know, I, and I, I constantly make the point that, that our, our goal is to restore homeostasis. You know, it, we don't have to usually do anything other than restore something close to normal. Breathe at the patient's normal respiratory rate. Um, breathe like the patient would breathe if they could do it on their own. You don't have to go faster. You don't have to go deeper. And quite often you will you will normalize their their monitoring parameters and their numbers just by restoring normal. Uh, I, I it is a, a fairly frequent thing that I come into smaller emergency departments where uh, I, I pick up patients going to tertiary care centers and the larger, larger medical centers, uh, and they're on a vent and the vent settings are just, uh, I don't, I guess somebody just said that everybody gets ventilated at 600, uh, with a hundred percent oxygen and no peep and a respiratory rate of 16. And somebody just taught that to everyone and man, people's, uh, it's, it's not appropriate for the vast majority of patients that we're dealing with. Um, and we have a device that will allow us to, to titrate uh, ventilatory rate and depth to the appropriate uh, uh, parameters and pulse oximetry and waveform capnography. We got that. Well, why don't if we're using it appropriately, then, then it shouldn't be an issue. But but people do. I'm going to dispute with you and I'm going to stick with my original assertion that no matter how well educated, people do tend to cling to. Uh, the the actions and the the uh, the things that are safe for them. Um, I, I I joke and say that I can fall down a flight of steps uh, and accidentally intubate five people on the way down. Um, and I know intuitively that using a bougie is probably a superior uh, tool to use that I should be employing on just about every intubation. But I don't. Um, I have to remind myself to do it. Uh, because I've, I've been successful at managing airways for 20 years before I ever picked up a bougie. Uh, and I think the same thing can be said of, of, of people who are fairly proficient at endotracheal intubation and now are being told that, ah, you know, a superglottic airway is just as good. I, I'm, I'm not ready to say that yet, but we know that the, the, the uh, pragmatic airways trial and the airways two trial uh, uh, demonstrated uh, equal um, uh, survival rates with superglottic versus endotracheal tube. Uh, but there were some issues with endotracheal intubation, like Dr. Wang has pointed out in his, in his uh, other studies, that we suck at it. Uh, and yeah, I would think that, that a well-performed superglottic airway 
would be equal to or superior uh, to a poorly performed endotracheal intubation. Uh, the question is, is are, are we, are, do we have a, a basis of comparison where people are actually skilled at endotracheal intubation uh, versus the supraglottic airways and see how those numbers pan out? But we got better stuff out there. We, we got, we've got these airways that make it easy, that have a low learning, uh, a fairly uh, uh, low learning curve, uh, that even uh, BLS personnel can master fairly easily. We've got AMBU bags with uh, lots of bells and whistles now that we should be using. Um, and we've got techniques and knowledge that, that allow us to stave off hypoxia far longer than we used to with the old, you know, uh, get the tube or get the superglottic airway in 30 seconds or you fail the station uh, standard. But we're, we're just not getting it. Uh, but um, I'm happy to see that Steve is uh, is uh, kind of carrying the torch here and, and saying, hey, it's time we got rid of this old antiquated device and, and started using something better. But, hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. Is your agency using these second-generation BBMs, the smaller adult BBMs? Have you, uh, have you noticed any change in your patient outcomes? Are they easier to use fiscally? Do they make more sense to you to replace two bags with one? We'd like to hear all your thoughts on the subject at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Ceballero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week. 